0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me. It's great to see everybody here. So it's pretty much impossible to hide anymore. And it's now widely admitted in Washington that the U.S. is engaged in a proxy war with Russia. It's just not being hidden. Congress just passed overwhelmingly a measure called the Ukraine Democracy Defense Land Lease Act, by a margin of 417 to 10 zero democrats opposed and what that bill does is it revives a a world war 2 era authority to make it faster to assist a foreign nation with us military equipment which is what the us is doing in ukraine because it's waging a proxy war there to to bleed russia uh joe biden made that clear this week when he announced another 33 billion dollars in aid for ukraine most of that in military expenditures. Nancy Pelosi led a delegation of Congress members today, including Adam Schiff, who's one of his chief concerns for the last five years has been ensuring that the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine continues unimpeded. And now he's presiding over a complete victory for that agenda. And Pelosi pledged to continue supporting Ukraine, quote, until victory is won. And victory as defined by the U.S., not as defined by ukrainian people so that's the state of affairs and concurrently we're seeing with the increased militarization of this conflict increased u.s support for for that effort uh we're seeing now an attempt that i've never faced in my lifetime before of policing any countervailing viewpoints we've seen that already with the suspensions on twitter of voices like scott ritter and many others who were providing uh A balance to, or a contrary point of view to the dominant narrative in the U.S., we saw that with the efforts to take the successful efforts to take RT, the Russian-backed network, off of the air, which succeeded. And this week, we saw a new phase of this campaign with the appointment of by the Biden administration of a new so-called disinformation governance board, headed by a woman, Nina Jankowicz, who has a long history of working for U.S. state cutouts, even served as an advisor. To the Ukrainian government with a long record herself of actually promoting disinformation, whether it's Christopher Steele, author of one of the most consequential pieces of disinformation in recent memory, the Steele dossier, um, also saying that uh, attacking the site that I work for, the gray zone, saying that we're a part of a Russian influence operation, which is a libelous claim. But, you know, that's nothing new for us to face claims like that it is rare though to hear it from a government official and that's what Nina Jankowitz is now uh, and the aims of this board are very very unclear they say there's nothing to worry about we're only going to be policing disinformation that causes harm but we all know what this is really about this is an effort to you know normalize this culture we have where anything deemed outside of the establishment consensus is so-called Russian disinformation that was the playbook laid down by Russia Gate and it's only escalated as Russiagate itself has led to the, this all-out all hot war in Ukraine in which the U.S. is a major belligerent. And so how is the Washington press corps treating this? Well, last night we saw a good uh, illustration of where they're at uh, with the White House Correspondents Dinner, this uh, gathering where Washington elites in politics and media, including Joe Biden himself, gather to celebrate each other. And amazingly, Joe Biden outright praised the media for essentially advancing the U.S. agenda. And I'll just play a little clip of that.
1: And at home, a
2: poison is running through our democracy. Of all all this taking place with disinformation massively on the rise, where the truth is buried by lies and the lies live on as truth. What's clear, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, that you... The free press matter more than you ever did in the last century. No, I really mean it. So if you're at home, watch. We've all seen the courage of the Ukrainian people because of the courage of American reporters in this room and your colleagues across the world who are on the ground taking their lives in their own hands. So
0: that's a bit of Biden speaking last night to the White House Correspondents Dinner, just basically padding people who call themselves journalists on the head for a job well done. And what that means is promoting the U.S. state line on Ukraine. And before that, I, I imagine also Biden is appreciative for a U.S. media that refused to report on the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop just because some anonymous intelligence officials declared that it's Russian disinformation, which of course we all now know was a, a complete fabrication, aka an act of disinformation itself, an act of Gate disinformation. And today on CNN, I have a clip I want to play a few quickly. This is how uh, Brian Stelter of CNN, and I think he's capturing a a prevailing view inside the Beltway media. This is how he's reacting to concerns about a new government disinformation board, the the disinformation governance board. And Brian Stelter basically says that any concern about it is essentially just right-wing hysteria. and and he's interviewing, by the way, he's interviewing somebody from the National Democratic Institute, which is a state-funded. Uh, organization that is used to essentially promote U.S. foreign policy around the world, which often means promoting regime change and destabilization of, of disobedient governments. So this is Brian Stelter speaking to her.
3: Here in the U.S., there's been a, an uproar in recent days about the Department of Homeland Security setting up what they call a disinformation governance board. Um, this has been mostly a Fox World story. It uh, it did come up earlier today on CNN State of the Union, but I don't think people know what it is and what it isn't. And there's just been a lot of of right-wing uproar without knowing what it is so do, are you in, uh, aware of this at all what is this all about
1: aware of it and i think the first thing is is that it's abort exactly as we say it, it is meant to bring together people to coordinate a lot of the efforts inside of dhs that means law enforcement that means emergency services like fema they've all been doing counter disinformation efforts for a while to give us accurate information about uh, uh human rights abuses, but also about disasters and where people can get assistance. So coordinating that activity, making it speak with one voice, and being a stronger advocate to tech companies and engaging the public and academia, that's really what they're after. But on, that sounds like common
3: sense. But when I Google this, all I see is like Joe Biden's Ministry of Truth, and they're going to st- you know, like it's this, there's this incredible backlash to something that sounds like basic government bureaucracy.
1: It is basic government bureaucracy, and around the world what we're asking for governments to do is to step up more and to play a bigger role in advocating for people. The Mm -hmm. big litmus test is, is civil society included? Is the media included? And so far, everything we've heard about the board, which is new and just started, shows us that that is the intention, is to be fully transparent and to demand more from our government in terms of how they protect us from disinformation and enable us to have information that protects our country mm. and advances our ability to survive in a in a major incident, for instance.
0: So that's the prevailing view on CNN, courtesy of its chief media correspondent, Brent Stelter that having a government disinformation board is just basic common sense. They're just out there looking for us. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear this point of view from a government bureaucrat. I mean, I, you know, that's what government bureaucrats I, I suppose, are, they They see themselves as, you know, above accountability. And they want, uh, I imagine, diso- uh, they want obedient people <laughs> out there to just follow their orders. That's, you know, odds are, if you're in the government, many people, at least, in, in, the, in the highest positions of power have that view. But to see so many people in the media celebrate this as if it's a good thing for our government to be telling us what is disinformation and what isn't, especially given how many times our government, with media complicity, has been caught spreading disinformation. Uh, I never cease to be amazed, no matter how many times I see it. And of course, the point to make about all these people, whether it's Carla Jankowicz, the the uh, the new head of this board, um, or whether it's sorry, that's not her name. It's uh, what is her name? Is it Nina Jankowicz? Yeah, Nina Jankowicz, not Carla. Whether it's her or whether it's Brian Stelter, the people who claim to be most concerned about Disinformation, and who claim the right to police so-called disinformation, are themselves the biggest purveyors of disinformation in this country. There's just nothing close. I mean, look at the long rap sheet they have. Russia Gate, every every major allegation related to Russia, you know, that came out of that. The Russian bounties in Afghanistan. Hunter Biden's laptop is Russian disinformation. Colin Kaepernick. That that controversy was started by Russian bots. That comes courtesy of Kamala Harris. She actually said that. You can go on and on and on, and many other more dangerous incidents like the Iraq War, the war in Libya, and all the lies used you, to you justify these conflicts. But uh, that's where we're at. And I think the consequence we're going to see is continued uh, cracking down on voices of dissent in the name of policing disinformation. Just this week, a number of independent journalists, uh, including uh, Mint Press News and Consortium News, to genuinely adversarial media sites reported that PayPal has cut them off and they can't collect donations anymore and i you know all of this is a part of that same campaign it's to marginalize voices of dissent make it impossible for them to operate and a part of that playbook is to stigmatize them as as pushing so-called disinformation so that's where we're at it's uh it's bleak but uh it makes for a an exciting time for those of us who don't want to accept that state of affairs so let's take some calls. That's my opening rant. And Sam, you're up first.
4: Hey, Aaron. I hope me all right. Yeah, we can hear you. Well, first, uh, just to go back uh, last week, um, your article on the whole thing in Syria was really great. Um, I remember mentioning to you that uh, there was a think tank group, but I couldn't think of the name at the time. So just to clarify, it was called the crisis group. If you ever get a chance, look it up. You'll you'll laugh pretty hard. What their viewpoint is, but um, to your point about this whole uh, state media, um, you know, it is. It, it, I don't think anyone can be surprised by this. You know, it, yeah, it ceases to amaze us. But being amazed and being surprised, I wouldn't really say it's you know hand in hand because let's let's remember just historically, people who spoke out against the Iraq War were fired from MSNBC or contracts were bought out. When uh, you have people fr- who supported the Iraq war who coined terms like axis of evil are promoted, you know, they can only fail upwards. I feel like we already had set that precedent a long time ago, and there's never a need to correct our uh, correct the, for the media to correct themselves. It's always, yeah, OK, we might have not gotten that right. And sure, we might have you know ran with the story about Viagra's and Gaddafi's soldier, but it's not our fault. That's what the intelligence had said. And then you're, and then they will say, well, yeah, okay, we have to, you know, question the intelligence, and but they never do, you know. And I think the reason people, I want to say the media is so keen to get on board with this is because they spent all those years pushing Russiagate. And when it was, again, nothing, like everything they had hoped for um, never panned out, they kind of were wondering, like, okay, what do we do now? But then you have the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and to them that was like Christmas, uh, New Year's, and everything, and their birthday all wrapped up. So this is a great way for them to go, ah, see, we were right about uh, the Russians and how they act. So I think this is just like the next step. I, I don't think anyone's surprised. I'm just more surprised that so so-called left YouTube channels don't cover this at all. I, I haven't seen too many of uh, too many YouTube channels covering this outside of very few marginal you know channels. This has gone widely unnoticed, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, well, because unfortunately, um, some prominent lefty outlets got duped by Gate, And they're now they're in this awkward position where this monster that's been unleashed of censorship, of marginalizing dissenting voices in the name of, you know, Russiagate orthodoxy um, is, you know, all this has been unleashed by something that they supported or at least that they failed to challenge. And rather than just acknowledge that, they are essentially either doubling down by going along with the Russiagate orthodoxy or just ignoring it, pretending that they're too cool for school and that it doesn't exist. But it's real. <laughs> and those of us who have been paying attention know that. And so, look, it's, yeah, um, it's too bad, but it creates a wide lane for those who are willing to have the courage to take it on. But I, I agree. It's, it's, uh, it, it's been very disappointing for me to see how people, um, have been reacting to this climate because it's sending a message that basically only those who are willing to play along and not challenge very damaging propaganda, um, are going to be like the acceptable lefties, like the ones that are allowed to, um, to exist is like those who are essentially cooperate with their silence. And that's very, that's just depressing. And unfortunately there are many, Cases where you can replicate that, like with Syria, you know, which you mentioned, it's a similar thing. Some people just if they some channels, some lefty channels either parrot the propaganda or they just ignore it because they get the message that if you go certain places, if you cross certain red lines, you're going to get marginalized, censored, called names. And people just don't want to have that headache. So they just sort of provide their consent with their silence. And by the way, so you mentioned my article on Syria. I'll post a link to it. It was called Al Qaeda is on our side. And speaking of censorship, it was censored by Facebook. People who, were, people who were sharing it on Facebook were receiving suspensions. And I think that's because it violated some community guidelines with the title, which was called Al Qaeda is on our side. But the thing is with that, that is not me saying that. That's a quote from the current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. And that's from an email he wrote in 2012 to Hillary Clinton which said Al Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And that's the point of my article, which the Obama administration supported an insurgency inside Syria that they knew was dominated by Al Qaeda, but still, did, but still did it anyway. Well, and you have so- to do
4: a roundabout you have to, instead of next time, just put a Q, it's less chance <laughs> for like the algorithm to, to figure it out. I know it seems moronic, but it will. Was that, was that article? I read it through a clear, uh, real clear investigations. Um, I don't know yeah, where that's they're...
0: where I published it. That's where, but okay, I also yeah. I also published it in my simultaneously in my Substack. And anybody who shared it via Substack got suspensions, or at least many people who shared it via Substack got suspensions. And mm-hmm. and for a couple of days, some people even said for thirty days. But um, that's just what it is. But it's funny is again, it was a I think it was for a quote that is from Jake Sullivan, the current yeah. national security advisor. So is, is Jake Sullivan then? Is he disinformation or is he is he like do his words violate community guidelines? it's just it's a pretty absurd situation, but it's very normal in the current situation we're in. And as you alluded to, a group that is essentially advocated for normalizing with al Qaeda, which is the group that currently rules the Syrian province of Idlib, is the International Crisis Group, which is a you know mm-hmm. heavily government funded group that supposedly helps uh, provide advice and mediate conflicts, but they've been advocating. Essentially, recognizing Al Qaeda's control of the Syrian province of Idlib to uh, use it as, in the words of uh, Jim Jeffrey, who was a top official under under Trump, use Al Qaeda as an asset for the U.S. and Syria, and that's basically been the, the U.S. policy there.
4: And I'll, look, I'll there is the a difference though between print and video, because actually, when I was reading your article, um, which actually when I when I just typed in um, Idlib Syria, your article was actually the first thing that popped up in the Google News. So I was like, oh, they haven't. They haven't figured this thing out yet. They'll 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 bump it down, no doubt. But um, it was also in there was a BBC article. I think it was just one year old, and it was actually telling. Very detailed, in my opinion, uh, who controls Idlib, and they, their summation was, yeah, it's it's Al Qaeda and or HTS, whatever you want to call it. And so you have a printed article that admits this, but yet if you ever watch like BBC's like YouTube video, it's always rebel-held area. So I'd, I'd say there is a little bit of a discrepancy between the print and you know what you're seeing on video. But yeah, it's yeah, just it's it's, an, it's insanity to to see this. But uh, they don't have time to cover this. But somehow anyone who's pointing these obvious things out, oh well, you're a there. Yeah, of course. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, and by the way, I didn't even mention one new phase of the current censorship freakout is you know the news that Elon Musk might buy Twitter and actually restore principles of free speech, and that. Didn't is- he already buy Twitter? Say it again. Didn't he already purchase Twitter? Wasn't the purchase already made? Well, he's made an offer, but it, or he's made a he's 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 uh, he's he's made an offer, but it has to be approved. I think it hasn't gone through yet. And there's even um, there's even speculation that it might be blocked somehow. It might be sabotage. So we'll see. But yeah, uh, that's a, again another example where the prospect of someone enforcing basic free speech rules elicited such a huge freakout from the same people whose job it is, to, is is to defend free speech. And that's you know, like if you're in journalism, how can you not be for free speech? Like, what's the point? unless you want to be a government stenographer. So anyway, that's it. that's a whole other aspect. Um, Sam, okay, thanks for the you, call. You
4: would, be, you would be shipped to Germany like Hirsch was. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Right, so
4: thanks for the call. Tom, you're up.
0: How you doing? I'm well. How you doing? Good.
3: I, I was just wondering if you saw the uh, Sam Seder critique of you. He called you a ball boy. By any chance, did you see that? I did see it.
0: I did yeah, see it. And i, I, I went. Way- was- yeah. Are you
3: weighing in on that?
0: (laughs) No, I I, the thing is, like, you know, you you say critique, but actually, did you see a critique in there at all of me at all?
3: No, I just saw total bullshit. I mean, the guy's a fucking hack.
0: Sorry. (laughs) Well, you know, I again, I'm like him. I I really try to avoid calling people names because I, I want to, you know, have some kind of respect for. What I do, although it you know it's hard. People make it hard when they're so disingenuous. But basically, for those who didn't see it, uh, Sam Cedar, who hosts a show called Majority Report, I mean, here's what happened. Um, and it's you know I hesitate to get into it because it's so it's such a waste of time. But I and and last time I did this with the Young Turks, it took up way too much time, and it's such a waste because I think also these people are just not very influential. And part of the reason they go after people like me is because they don't have they don't actually. Do much journalism, and so they need to create these little beefs to gain some traction. So anyway, I'll just say quickly, basically, a co-host on Sam Cedar's show claimed that I denied genocide a few weeks ago. and But they didn't even specify what genocide I'm denying, which is kind of strange. If you're going to accuse them of denying genocide, you at least want to mention maybe what the genocide is so people can go look it up. Um, but they didn't. So anyway, I wrote them and I asked them to retract that, to either substantiate your smear of me, or Or retract it. And so that's what produced this video that that they just made in which they insult me a lot, but um don't address really anything I've said, uh, and call me names. (laughs) So (laughs) that's how they responded. And that's whatever. That's just what it is. That's that's the kind of uh content that they're into. And you know. Um whether I'm gonna spend more time responding, I I'll maybe I'll send a tweet or something, but uh, it's, I think we should yeah, you took down yeah. TYT pretty yeah. well, and
3: that was great to watch personally.
0: Well, but the thing is, what the the reason I spent so much time on TYT well, was twofold. First of all, they then they then when their attack on me failed so spectacularly, they then doubled down by smearing Jimmy Dore and accusing him of sexual harassment, which was just so ridiculous. And so I felt as if basically him defending me had then led to him being accused of a of a of a serious charge. And it was so ridiculous that I felt the need to, you know, step up and help defend him against something so ridiculous. But also, I mean, the the, the biggest m- motive for me was that, you know, them attacking me gave me a chance to talk about the OPCW cover up scandal, which mm-hmm. the rest of the media has done such a good job avoiding um, because it's so damning to their whole narrative. And again, for those who don't know it, this is the story I've spent a lot of time covering because I've gotten leaked documents on it. Um, of a cover up at the OPCW of an investigation that on the ground in Syria, found no evidence that Syria was guilty of a chemical attack in Douma in April 2018. And their investigation was covered up. And so um, I spent a lot of time reporting on that with leaked documents. And the rest of the media has done such a great job ignoring it because it's so damning to their narrative. I mean, once you realize that not only was there no evidence of a chemical attack in Syria, but there was a major effort to cover up that the, the, the evidence that showed this. It's very damning to the narratives that are used to justify the dirty war in Syria. So smart propagandists, like a guy named Joby Warwick, who writes for the Washington Post, he wrote a whole book called Red Line. It's about Syria and the OPCW and chemical weapons. He wrote an entire book about this topic, and he ends it right at the alleged incident in Duma. He ends the book right there thereby allowing him to not mention what comes afterwards, which is the OPCW leaks emerging and all these revelations of a massive scandal. So that's a smart propagandist. He realizes that if he acknowledges the OPCW leaks, he he has to then uh, weigh their contents. And once you weigh their contents, your narrative collapses because the facts are so overwhelming that A, the investigation found found no evidence of chemical attack, and B, there was a massive cover-up. So his answer is just not to acknowledge it both in his book and in all of his articles on the topic. Zero. He's never acknowledged the existence of the OPCW whistleblowers and the explosive leaks. So that's that's at least a smart propagandist. A dumb propagandist like the people at TYT, they thought it was a good idea to try to disprove the the OPCW whistleblowers uh, because they were trying to double down on their smear of me, which was so embarrassing for them. So they brought on a Twitter troll to try to basically explain why there was nothing to see here. And so that gave me a good opportunity to basically, you know, highlight an issue that the rest of the media had spent so much time ignoring. So, that was like the, that was like a, you know, the, uh, the, that was a bonus for me in engaging with them on that. But with someone who just calls me names, like ball boy, like, what am I going to do with that? Do I need to engage with that? I have a lot to do. So, we'll see.
3: (laughs) I understand. Uh, One more thing. I just, like, with this new, you know, director of whatever, I mean, I just want to know: Are you ter- terrified? Chilling to you? Because to me, I've never been more scared in my life. Like that, we're li- literally headed, you know, face first into fascism. You know, it, it, I've never been this scared, and I've never mm. thought it could get to this point. And I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. I mean, America in, in the West. I mean, it's like. Up is down, down is up. Everything's nothing makes sense anymore, and we're supposed to accept this. And I don't think it's where people are going to accept it eventually. And I think the backlash is going to be amazing. And I think maybe is this like a preemptive thing they did to get this disinformation minister out so they can preempt some kind of stuff that's coming out. I mean, you know, in the fall about the. Ele- I mean, I don't.
0: I just, well, you know, like listen on the side. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I I mean. I share your concern. I I, I don't, I can't say I'm scared because first of all, you know, we only can control the present and what's in, what's in front of us right now. We can't control what might happen in the future. Is fascism possible in the future? Absolutely. Are developments like this possibly putting us on the road to fascism? Maybe we don't know that, you know, what we do know is that we can control the events in front of us right now. And all of us have a role in that. So to me, I just, it doesn't, I don't see the point in, in getting too scared about it because that's, Because then you're tying yourself to a a a something that's far in the future, or at least that's out of our control uh, ahead of us. Like we're in control of what's in front of us now. And look, the world's been a lot worse than it is right now, as scary as it is right now. You know, my maybe it's my own in my own case. Look, in my family's experience, my father was born into uh, you know uh, to Nazi occupied Hungary. You know, Mm -hmm. that's so. It's just you know knowing what people have lived through you know in the past what people are living through now and compared to our, our own situation I I just it's not I don't I can't get I just into I feel a place like we're going fear.
3: backwards though.
0: So, you know absolutely listen it's a it's a scary I totally share your concern it's a scary time it is uh, but the question is um, you know where do, where do you want to put our energies and uh, luckily look I do think in this country there's a unique defense in theory of free speech that I appreciate it, it's stronger than in pretty much any other country around the world that's at least you know part of the culture it's being eroded but it's at least there and it's it is it is it is formalized in the law in some ways free speech so we have to use the opportunities we have you know so and i do think the fact that look at how many people did not watch cnn plus how what a failure that was that was a rebuke of our ruling class and i think so i take inspiration in developments like that also, is it preemptive, though, this this in any way to something that's coming? It could be. It totally could be. Certainly, I think it's, you know, a part of an effort to put in place, t- to normalize a culture in, w- in which dissenting voices are censored and uh, stigmatized as Russian disinformation or, or whatever else. I mean, that's, that's been the Russiagate playbook for more than five years now. That's very, it's very clear we're in that moment. But, you know, will it be successful? except for among you know liberal (laughs) liberal media employees i don't know i don't i don't think so i i I also trust in the common sense of most people i do so you know but we'll see thank you for having me great thank you okay (laughs) anthony
5: hey what's up aaron how's it going going well i'm just uh yeah i'm not surprised about this uh dhs bureau thing i mean i mean i i some kind of shocked that they think you know enough the american public wouldn't be against it that they think they could get away with it but i've always been against the existence of the department of homeland security since you know 2003 and yeah i always saw it going towards this trajectory it really doesn't need to it's the it's the number one bureaucracy that you know needs to be taken down. Maybe with the CIA, FBI, I don't know. But uh, I've been of that opinion for a long time. Uh, so anyway, um, I really, you know, I can't believe this. I mean, I can believe it. We have the Democratic squad. These are supposed to be our left, right? And they all voted for weapons twice in the last two days and sanctions, you name it. And uh, it's funny how, on the on the left you keep getting these debates oh should we focus on electoralism or a uh, direct action da 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 and it's always in such vague terms that it seems meaningless to me but regardless of who you get in there once they're in there the squad is supposed to be the people that we supposedly align with so you know they need to be hammered on this stuff nonstop every day and that's is beyond electoralism it's just paying attention to what they do and what their media appearances and you know like when max was uh Roman, the Capitol, and he got all those different interviews with Massey and uh, Kana. And so I think that's really important to just hound them and they got to be hammered. And it, it shows like it shows the ruling class that you're an idiot and a dupe if you let the squad get away with this kind of stuff and not have their reputations, you know, damaged.
0: Yeah, I mean, the left that I grew up with was willing to challenge the national security state. And as long as I've been alive, there's always at least been some element inside of Congress that, I mean, not consistently, but at least to some extent, was willing to do that in the 1980s. You know, uh, people like John Kerry. John Kerry held some meaningful oversight of what the CIA was doing in Nicaragua back when he was a senator in the 1980s. And, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but he did something. And, you know, then Dennis Kucinich came along and was a um, very courageous against what the U.S. government did in Iraq, in Syria as well. And then you had Tulsi Gabbard, uh, who especially in Syria was, you know, uh, was challenging a policy that, as I talked about before, was arming an Al Qaeda dominated insurgency. And but basically, people like that have been chased out of town. They're just not. They don't exist in the Democratic Party anymore. And now we have the Squad, who you know, I once had a lot of hope for. I did, and I also thought that maybe they were getting just too much attention from everybody that they're you know, that their influence was exaggerated that and that I thought it was a mistake to spend so much time talking about them. But when they when they consistently vote in favor of the national security state policies that really are that really violate everything that they supposedly stand for, I mean it's a problem. It's a serious problem. And I agree with you that they deserve criticism for that. They just again I mentioned that Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend Lease Act, uh, the margin was four hundred and seventeen to ten. And zero members of the Democratic Party were in opposition. It was all it was all Republicans who voted against it. And this is a bill that is a you know, will massively escalate US involvement in the proxy war in Ukraine. And again, because of Russia Gate mostly, which I blame, Russia Gate normalized this culture where if you challenged the FBI, the CIA, if you challenged their prerogatives and the Fundamental orthodoxies that guide the national security state in in believing that we have the right to wage proxy wars against uh, other governments. If you challenge that, then you're somehow right wing or a Russian dupe. All that people have bought into that, and whether they believe it or not, I think what has been successful is people have been scared enough into being compliant. And look no further than Bernie Sanders. Even when Bernie Sanders got Russia gated. In the 2020 primary, uh, if you remember that right before the Nevada caucus, all of a sudden some leaks came out saying that U.S. intelligence has evidence that Russia is favoring Bernie Sanders. They want him to win. Bernie Sanders basically went along with it. I mean, he was he was angry that it happened. but He didn't challenge it fundamentally. Uh, his, his advisor, Matt Dust, said, yes, like we believe the intelligence. They didn't have the guts to point out this was just another national security state scam designed to protect the imperatives of the people who run Washington, whether it's the you know neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party, or it's people in the FBI, the CIA, who don't want President Bernie, just like they didn't want President Trump, and used the specter of Russia to undermine him. Um, so even when Russia Gate was used against Bernie, he still didn't speak out against it, and that speaks to how successful a disinformation campaign campaign it's been.
5: Yeah, I think uh, the criticism of the squad—it was always too focused on AOC. And uh, if uh, it was, I have a squad member here locally, and I actually donated to them back when they started out, and I'm really disappointed in them. So I think uh, they're—you know—they're standing in the way between us and Nancy Pelosi, and Nancy Pelosi standing in the way between them and the—you know—oligarchy. Uh, so it's really like—that's why I—I I will never stop. They got to be hounded real bad because they're supposedly who represents you know you and us and people on this call politically so yeah thanks
0: yeah I donated too and I definitely would not be doing that again (laughs) All right, thanks for the call next caller is H. Ali
6: hi can you hear me yes yes Yes, I've been I'm calling from Sweden I've been uh, following this show since the war started and I have sort of a comment uh that maybe you could <laughs> reply on if you, but it's, it's, it's just from the, from the Swedish perspective, because both on this part and uh, I mean, this Colin and playing Greenwald and Michael Tracy, I've, because in the previous one, I've been listening, I've been listening not live, so I haven't been able to, um, to reply live, but there's been a lot of questions about why Sweden and Finland are, thinking about joining NATO when when it's things have been working well for them, being like neutral countries. And, uh, you know, that question is something that would have made more sense about 20 years ago when Sweden was still like a social democratic country for real, and because we were during the uh, 20th century, like, a lot of people saw us as the um like a healthy balance between capitalism and communism during the Cold War, but maybe not everyone uh, outside Sweden in America know this, but we're not the country that we used to be, and we've um, slowly but surely we've we've developed into some kind of you know average country within this neoliberal hegemony um so, so, but at this point, um, I mean, I can't go into the details because we don't have time, but at this point, it's not, it's not really that strange. We've become the Sweden that a lot of people, I think, think about when they ask, why would they join NATO? That Sweden doesn't exist anymore. And just like you, a lot of things are similar here to, to North America. It's, it's like we've just realized we don't have. Left wing politics in this country anymore. And we're, we're just like average Western European country that follows the line of America. And I don't think, I don't think we can go from that line of, you know, neoliberal American led hegemony, because I guess there are a lot of financial uh, connections between these countries that, that wouldn't even allow that. So I know it's not a very happy message I'm I'm sending here, but that's the truth. And there's always been paranoia about Russia, even during Cold War. But it was it was still I mean I'm I'm old enough to remember that 20 years ago it was still Sweden was still the Sweden that a lot of people still think about, and we used to look at America and think, oh, they have. They're so capitalist and they have no left-wing politics for real. And and now we're just where, where you are. Yeah. As well. yeah. Like,
0: and- you know, let me quote you something from the Washington Post. This is January 28th. The Ukraine crisis is a major test of Biden's presidency as Putin challenges Washington's dominance of transatlantic security. And I thought that, that passage perfectly captured what this entire Ukraine crisis is about. Not about defending freedom in Ukraine or democracy. But about what the Washington Post calls Washington's dominance of transatlantic security. And, you know, yeah. I don't, I'm not European. Um, I haven't been to Europe in a while. But, yeah. and, and I understand for some people, you know, on the surface, if you are in NATO, if you're allied with the US, then you, you know, you have protection no one's going to invade you you're living under the washington's umbrella but it means you have to follow washington's orders (laughs) and and and... it it also means that washington is content to destroy your economy when it becomes convenient as we're seeing now especially in germany where germany is paying a heavy price for basically being a lackey and you know it always made sense to me to have what gorbachev envisioned and i think what putin himself even Proposed, which is have, you know, a European, like an integrated European security order and a European uh, economic order in which, you know, countries are, uh, have mutual security pacts and have economic pacts and everyone gets along. Uh, but the policy led by the U.S. has been, you know, there's that there's that line that the NATO policy has been to keep Russia down, uh, but keep Russia out, keep Germany down and keep the U.S. on top. I mean, that's pretty much what. NATO has been there for and um, you know you mentioned yeah for Finland uh, it sound and Sweden it sounds like things are going pretty well being neutral but for yeah but European, we haven't
6: been neutral for a while so I think yeah, it's not just the politics it's also culturally we've like I've seen how being proper left like you can't really criticize capitals if they were used to and yeah. if someone would call you a communist you would be just as Afraid as you'd be in America during the Cold mm. War, so mm. that's the sad thing that it's it's not just the political limitations; it's also also culturally we've been we've gone more and more neoliberal.
0: It is sad, and and it is and you know if you look at Europe, I mean, who are the politicians that have been you know the major politicians that have pre- pre- like you know posing a major challenge to this neoliberal order? Well, there was Jeremy Corbyn who came a few thousand yeah. votes short of becoming prime minister. But what happened, members of his own party sabotaged him um, yeah, yeah, yeah. W- in 2017. The
6: Swedish social democrats were talking shit about him here, too. Of course they were.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, of yeah, of course they were. Of course they were. Yeah. So that means that the only other alternative is people like Le Pen in France, you know, <laughs> uh, who yeah. has made a lot of bigoted comments and ha- you know, has a history of coming from a very bigoted family. So these are, so these are the alternatives. Like, there's either, if you have a genuinely social democratic leader like Corbyn, they're going to be sabotaged from within yeah. their own party. And the only alternative yeah. left is, is on the right. And that's, you know, that's where people are going to turn if they, if they have no other option. Because, you know, uh, yeah. working people especially in France, I think that Le Pen got a majority of the working class vote, and, unless I'm wrong. Um, yeah, because there is, no, there is no credible alternative on the left speaking to their concerns right now. And by credible, credible I mean with, with, with uh, you know, serious support. You know, um, yeah. that's just how it is. So I feel for you.
6: That's a funny thing. Cause when I was young, you know, they would always talk about socialist Sweden, but now it's like for me to find some kind of real socialism or left-wing policies, I have to, I mean, the American left, at least there's some trace of it, like, like this Colin and Michael Tracy and then Greenwald, but as far as I can tell, maybe maybe I'm missing someone, but I can't, there's nothing here, because tradition, one thing that is still, like it was before, is that Sweden is, Sweden is very like, consensus driven, so like, when when something becomes the norm, it becomes very strong, so it's very mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. alright, well listen, we're going to move on, yeah. thank you for the call, I appreciate
6: it Yeah, I appreciate it, thank you for, thank you for everything
0: Thank yeah. you, Nima, you're up Oh, sorry,
7: can you guys, can you hear me? Sorry, no, just um, just to build on the other previous caller's uh, thing about Sweden. I live in Sweden as well, and, and I can tell you that there is no doubt in my mind that Sweden is going to commit the ultimate suicide and join NATO because, as we heard tonight from the Swedish foreign minister, she, was, she said that she was convinced that Finland are joining NATO, and the Swedish prime minister said earlier today that should Finland join, it completely changes the security order of scandinavia and and that's all you need to know about that i mean it's, there's no doubt in my mind now that finland and sweden are joining nato which is absolutely insane but to be honest with you aaron and and, and everyone else listening the this notion of neutrality has been been dead for quite some time in this part of the world mm-hmm. um they, they cooperate with nato in, in every single way the the issue is however is not exactly as you as you stated if you're in nato your you know you, you, you Nate, the united states decides pretty much everything you do um and 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 even if it means as victoria newland so eloquently said fuck the eu she meant that that wasn't just hyperbole They've completely fucked the EU, and they've got the EU to fuck itself. And I'm sorry for my, for my language, but that's that's pretty much what what's happened here. But I wanted to hear your your point um, on something else because there's something that I've started to by by following Russian media and and, and the pro Putin side, and that is that. I'm starting to see signs of Russia turning to a war, uh, turning itself into a war status. And there's been some, some, some commentators in Russia who believe that the 9th of May or 10th of May, when victory day is, will be the first, will, will be when Putin actually declares actual war on the Ukraine and increases even more because of the way that the West is Arming Russia, uh, arming Ukraine. I wanted to hear your little your, your thoughts on that. What, what do you think? What do you think about that? Have you thought about that? Have you heard anything? And, and if so, what what are your
0: thoughts? I, I haven't heard that. I definitely think there's a big, you know, nationalist, uh, chauvinist strain inside Russian politics, which happens during war, especially, and it seems to be very powerful. Uh, and so an escalation of the war even further, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But in terms of what, what I can anticipate about Russian plans, I have no idea.
7: Okay.
0: Now I'm just trying to think that, I mean, given how
7: Russia's pretty much, I mean, as you said, proxy war, but, but if we're perfectly honest, it's the Ukraine isn't fighting Russia. It's everyone else via, or the NATO pretty much via Ukraine fighting Russia. Um, at some point, um, I mean, where do you see the breaking point is where we actually end up in a World War Three scenario? Because that seems to me, to me, where the so-called liberal uh, establishment agenda is. They want World War Three. That, I, I can't, I can't read, read what they're saying any other way.
0: Well, I don't think it's monolithic. I, th- I think there are certainly elements inside you know powerful circles who do want a war with Russia, who see that as the only way to destroy what they see as a you know existential foe in Moscow but I don't know how widespread that view is and from what I've seen inside the Pentagon the Pentagon does not seem very keen to engage in a war with Russia. The Pentagon has a major say over that. That could be wrong you know um, but uh, Why do you you think that, sorry, why do you think the Pentagon doesn't want that? Because if you look at you know who's been leaking stuff during the war that has undermined or at least not bolstered the dominant narrative. It's come from the Pentagon mostly. And that's not surprising because the Pentagon is the, you know, one that has to actually fight the war. Yeah. And they know what they know what that war is. And often you have political people in the State Department or, or CIA who don't, you know, that's not their concern. They're just there to advance a political narrative. And uh, they have other things on their mind. But mm-hmm. it's the Pentagon that, you know, has to have accurate intelligence to be able to do their job properly. And so, and that 's why I think they just don 't want to take this to his logical conclusion so i 'm not convinced that we 're going to enter world war three i don 't rule it out. Um, there are certainly people inside Washington who want it, but i uh, look Biden could have for all he 's done that 's been escalatory he you know he could have escalated by now if he wanted to fight russia he, he could have gotten u s forces involved. You know, the US could have helped pull off a false flag, which has been done before, like in Vietnam, the, the Gulf, yeah. you know, but they haven't done that. Now, they've also, it seems like there are people who want to leave that as a possibility. Uh, that's why recently we had talk about chemical weapons attacks <laughs> and how that would be a, a a red line, just like in Syria. <laughs> and, then, and then you had, but then you had intelligence officials admitting to NBC News a few weeks later that actually they had no evidence to support any of that. They were just doing that preemptively. You know, so um, (laughs) yeah, it's a it's a curious time. By the way, you know, since you mentioned Victoria Newland and that phone call, the funniest thing happened recently in the New York Times, where they did what doesn't get done very often in U.S. media, where they actually acknowledged the Victoria Newland phone call, which doesn't happen often because it's so inconvenient to the narrative, right? If you're if you're claiming that the U.S. is in Ukraine to support democracy and freedom, it's not a good. And the and you know Vladimir Putin just woke up one day and decided to invade Ukraine because he hates democracy. It doesn't look good to have a, you know, on, on tape, a top U S official plotting on which Ukrainian government to install in a, which is exactly what happened where Victoria Newland essentially picked the members of Ukraine's new government. And then a few weeks later, there was a coup and those same people who she picked came in. And in that call, she also said, fuck the EU, but yeah. the times interest, like when they t- mentioned this uh, call recently, uh, well, this this is how they described that call. And, you know, try to listen for what is missing here. The division was captured in a phone call in which a senior State Department official profanely criticized European leaders' approach to helping Ukraine. A leaked recording of the call was posted on YouTube in February 2014 in what was widely believed to be an attempt by Russia to stir up discord between the U.S. and Europe. So a few things here. First of all, the time... that. That's how the Times describes the Newland call. And notice what they don't mention. They don't mention the part where Newland selects the next Ukrainian government. Says She says, Yats is the guy. And that's yeah. a reference to Yatsnyok, who became the Ukrainian prime minister. So the, the, the New York Times has vetoed that part of history. It's gone. Instead, this call is only about... uh Nuland, quote, profanely criticizing European leaders' approach to helping Ukraine, okay, which is actually not even what she was doing. Not even remotely. She was saying, fuck the EU because she's saying, fuck them. We don't need them involved in our plot. So they can, like, they're not being, they're not being cooperative enough. So fuck them. That's what she meant. Uh, And then it's characterized as an attempt by Russia, and I'm quoting here, to stir Mm -hmm. up discord between the US and Europe, not an attempt by the US to launch a coup. Exactly. So I just thought that was a, you know, a really revealing window to how the U.S. media works, where the one rare time where they do acknowledge the Newland call, they distort it in such an egregious way. That's
7: no, unbelievable. But it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens now, because clearly Finland and, and we, we, you know, we, with NATO tightening its grip, you, you have a midterms in the United States. Um, and then obviously presidential election, and I and I actually think that I'm I'm of the opinion that I think Donald Trump is coming back. We're we're going to see Trump 2.0, um, and 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 it will be very interesting to see how the establishment handle that.
0: Yeah, I uh, I think you're right. I think he's coming back too, and it's going to be just another phase of this national craziness that we've been living in since 2016 and i'm sure they'll find another way to try to drum up a, a because again they can't just challenge him on policy because they don't really have any fixed principles or anything that can really that they can show for that's helped the american people so they have to dr- revert to this playbook of accusing their opponents of being russian dupes and all that stuff and uh, you know they, they they've done it for two straight elections two straight elections in which democratic party corruption's been exposed the first time it was hillary clinton you know, plotting against Bernie, giving uh, lucrative speeches to Wall Street, all that was just Russian disinformation, a Russian influence effort. In 2020, Hunter Biden's laptop gets discovered, oh, that's just Russian dis- disinformation. And that's all they know. And they continue to show that the, that's all they know by doing things like creating now a new disinformation governance board. So a lot more of that ahead
7: the um, and the ironic thing with that uh, about R- trump you know colluding with russia is that there's actually as far, as far as i'm aware the only person the only campaign the only side who's who's had a journalist I- in ukraine actually convicted of trying to meddle in an American election on behalf of Hillary Clinton was a Ukrainian journalist in Ukraine during what's his name Poroshenko's uh, uh, era if you I mean we as as all That's of us the right. they go. they
0: leaked they they leaked information about Paul Manafort that actually appears yeah. to be fabricated it was a secret ledger yeah. uh, that appears to be just fabricated in a bid to uh undermine Trump's campaign as Ukrainian officials admitted it was there's an article yeah. in the financial times about it back when it happened saying how they're yeah. openly trying to meddle but of course that's that's okay Th- that foreign interference is fine because it's it was on behalf of the right candidate Nima, <laughs> thanks thanks for <laughs> Thank the call you. Thanks, for thanks. The call. Bye. and i will link to these articles that i meant as many as many articles as i remember i will link to them in the show notes of this episode and that's one of them okay ann are you there
8: Hi, yeah, Aaron, you Hi. do such amazing research. It's um, it's it's just you do a great job. I don't know how you have time even to do other things, but and in that in that vein, um, with all the things that are happening with the new government, truth ministry, uh, everything you had in your rant, um, and then I saw Max's report this week that some weird group is um, investigating the gray zone. Um, we have Trump, Biden, and Trump now saying everything is fake news. I mean, it's ridiculous. But the thing that I'm starting to wonder is, with how much we're all dependent on the internet for news and new sites and everything, you know, um, what would happen if if like one day the gray zone disappeared? I mean, or, or any of you, um, how would we necessarily find you and i I don't even know if there's an answer to that question
0: um, (laughs) great question
8: (laughs) i live in new york where we have for years had a great radio station on the pacifica network wbai um there's there's pacifica in california and a few other places but without that and without the internet i don't know it would be very very difficult um be very hard not only for information but just psychologically because uh i i don't there's no one in my life who has who can talk about this stuff which and the last point and i'll stop is um even during the iraq war there was a huge peace movement and you you know you had solidarity and um things you thought you might do together this is different so what do we do how do we find you if for example the gray zone or any of you uh were taken away,
0: so to speak? You know, it's a great question. I, I haven't actually done any kind of contingency planning like that. Uh, but if it happens, I'll find a way to get found. You know? <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, I am, you know, I, I just can't even fathom that I'm going to be censored to that degree. I, I just, maybe it's naive, but I, I do actually believe in free speech here. And uh, what I do is factual. I believe in it. Um, and I just don't think, I mean, certainly, I mean, there are other ways to censor voices like mine. For example, you just don't allow us, you don't allow us on TV, you know, uh, except, oh, yeah. for on, except for on Tucker Carlson, where we, where, you know, some of us get invited occasionally. But I mean, that's, I think that approach, from the point of view of like neocon, like neocons and their allies, the approach of just ignoring voices like mine and pretending we don't exist or smearing us as Russian agents, I think that's working fine for them. I don't think they need to. Go outright i center us. Take it away. Yeah,
8: if yeah. they do,
0: if they do, then then we'll you know deal with it. Then, but you mentioned uh, the gray zone and this attempt to basically um, uh, cancel it. There was this Max Blumenthal, the editor of the Gray Zone, got an email recently from this uh, group called NewsGuard, which is a you know government-funded uh, organization that supposedly ranks outlets based on their trustworthiness, and they gave CNN a very high rating which gives you an indication of how trustworthy a news card is. And they they were just asking Max a series of you know the typical McCarthyite questions about the gray zone and you know and uh, Max just said we we don't have to answer to you like you know just because you have a fancy name and some government funding doesn't give you any authority over our journalism and in fact we're actually proud to draw your contempt It shows we're doing we're doing our job. And um you know so there that's I think the way in which we'll face uh like crackdowns is people trying to stigmatize us and call us bad names. But in terms of outright censorship, I'm just, that doesn't worry me too much yet.
8: Or even that thing with pay, PayPal, um, if if you were yeah. able to keep your income. But I guess I I know you often end on an optimistic note, which is great. But if, if one channel got taken down, there might be another. Um, yeah. And if they were all gone one day, I guess it would be, we would have other problems at that point. Besides yeah. <laughs> where to get the news. Exactly. But thanks, Aaron.
0: Keep yeah, thank it up. You. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. John.
9: Hi, Aaron. How are you?
0: I'm well. How you doing? Um,
9: I'm doing pretty well. Um, I, I was agitated with this uh, Ministry of Truth, um, but I, I guess I have uh, sort of one good thing to say about it. Um, the level of incompetence um like this rush to the bottom first you know trump was terribly incompetent and now biden is proving equally incompetent and equally um just absolutely unsympathetic to like actual americans people who have jobs and so forth um And so I I think that what's, and and the ire that's been raised, I, for the first time in my life, and I've seen Tucker Carlson since he was on uh, CNN. And for the first time in my life, I watched a segment that he did on this whole ministry of truth. And I literally agreed with everything he had to say. And that was like mind blowing
0: to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
9: because this this is ridiculous but thank god like the the person who's in charge she seems like a clownish cartoonish figure um Mm -hmm. uh, like there's there's apparently lots of her um it's entertaining her singing and so forth Uh, she's not a bad singer but um she's very clownish and um i'm i'm sure she will do something so awful or so stupid you know, that this thing is gonna kind of crumble under its own weight.
0: Yeah, and you know, on your point about Biden's contempt for average people, let me play you a clip from the White House correspondents dinner from last night, which I think speaks to this. And he's he's basically joking about both his low approval ratings and that of the media.
2: I'm really excited to be here tonight with the only group of Americans with a lower approval rating than I have.
0: <laughs> so that's basically you know, Biden and the media, in what looks on the surface to be self-deprecating, really are actually laughing at the American people. Because what they're saying is the people who we represent, both as politicians and as you know journalists who are there to represent the people's interests, essentially, uh, they loathe us. But we don't care because we're all here at this fancy dinner wearing tuxedos and fancy gowns and we can laugh at it. So that to me was actually, under the guise of being self-deprecating, actually a sign of real contempt for average people because if you take your job seriously as a politician and the vast majority of the country loathes you and thinks you're doing a terrible job that's something to laugh about it's something to actually address and uh, improve but they don't care because they're not there to actually represent average people they're there to represent the elite class they all want to be a part of and that's why they're at this fancy dinner and not actually you know out there doing their jobs Um, so I, i just thought that that was that was interesting. And yes, in terms of, uh, this new head of the, the disinformation governance board, Nina Jankowitz, I mean, yeah, she does appear pretty, um, as you say, clownish. And I was wondering, like, did they, did they see these videos of her singing a Mary Poppins theme song about disinformation? And I was <laughs> like, like what's worse that they did no vetting or that they did do the vetting and they didn't see all this as like as embarrassing for them. I don't know, but it. Uh, I agree with you that, um, it 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 seems too clownish to pose any real threat but the what it represents is a real threat because it it represents a desire to police information and to silence dissenting views and that's the serious part there
9: yeah and like you know when i was holding my nose and uh, voting for joe biden um you know i kind of thought well you know tony blinken he's he's been around he's you know been involved with things forever uh, you know, he, he must be a pretty good guy. And, um, you know, uh, for instance, I speaking of the incompetence, um, I just heard uh, Pepe Escobar uh, with Richard Medhurst um, speaking toward the incompetence. And um, he, he thinks Tony Blinken's a joke, an absolute joke. And he, uh, you know, fully believes that most of the other um, – you know, actual functioning State Departments uh of our allies and enemies also find him to be a bit of a joke. Um and, you know, just the idea that we haven't done any actual diplomacy, you know, uh how many months into this war now, and we're just spending more and more money, um, you know, I, I think I think Americans are beginning to wake up. Like when I can agree with Tucker Carlson That's a problem for the, like, Democratic
0: establishment. It absolutely is. I totally agree. And it's crazy to me that in corporate news, there's pretty much only one voice that's willing to dissent from the national security state. And that's Tucker Carlson, who, you know, although I agree with him when he talks, although I often agree with him when he talks about issues like Ukraine, I don't agree with him on many other issues, especially uh, immigration, in which I, I find his views to be vile. Um, and uh, among other things. So, but yes, in this climate, by being pro-militarism, pro-war, the professional left is ceding so much ground to voices like Tucker Carlson, in which there is no alternative, and, and they make and they're making it impossible to to uh, to support them anymore. It's just getting so ridiculous. And we talked earlier about the Squad uh, being no serious alternative to all that as well. On the point of Blinken, let me play one clip. This is Blinken back in 2015 when the Obama administration had a much different approach to Ukraine. Obama refused to arm Ukraine in the way that you know people like Joe Biden wanted him to because he didn't want to send weapons to Ukraine and didn't want to further inflame a proxy war that you know Obama rightly recognized Russia would always be able to win. And it was Blinken's job working for Obama then to explain why. So this is what he said back then.
2: In a sense...
9: If you're playing on a military terrain in Ukraine, you're, you're playing to uh, Russia's strength because Russia's right next door. It has a huge amount of military equipment and military force right on the border. Anything we did as countries in terms of military support for Ukraine is likely to be matched and then doubled and tripled and quadrupled by Russia. It has the ability to do that. It would be very difficult for us to do that. And then you may well get into an escalatory cycle that uh, is hard to control and hard to predict.
0: So that's Blinken in 2015, I think very cogently explaining the lunacy of the current administration's policy, saying that if you are playing on the military terrain in Ukraine, you're playing to Russia's strength because Russia is right there. And they, whatever you do, they can escalate even more and overmatch you. So now Blinken, that's, in that's him in 2015. Now in 2022... He's out there being the face of the exact opposite policy, of doing everything he warned against back in 2015. And that speaks to the complete absence of any principles among our uh, ruling elites. And I, I think, can't think of a more, just a, a bigger po- poster child of that than Blinken, who is constantly talking about the sanctity of international law while repeatedly violating it wherever it's deemed convenient. And, uh, but anyway, that's, that's who our diplomats are.
9: Yeah, and just Newland's still like doing her thing. Um, oh yeah, it, it's obscene um, to me that she can still be, you know, so highly placed and well between her and her husband.
0: Um, it's just disgusting. So it is, and you know, you know, I haven't really done much on Russia Gate recently because the war in Ukraine, you know, subsumes everything else. But Victoria Newland, you know, she has a really deep Russiagate tie. I wrote about this recently in an article I did about how the FBI has this origin story that the Steele dossier had nothing to do with their investigation of Trump and Russia, and I noted that New, it was New, Newland played a huge role in the in the dissemination of the Steele dossier. First of all, her and Christopher Steele worked closely together. Steele was like a trusted source of hers, including giving her reports about Ukraine back when she was working under Obama, and then uh, in the summer of 2016, when Steele wrote up his reports. It was Newland who authorized the first FBI agent who met with Steele to go meet with him, to go travel to London to meet with him. Newland gave that FBI agent the green light to go meet with Steele in London. And then Newland even received Steele's allegations in in July before the FBI originally before the FBI opened, officially opened up its investigation crossfire hurricane. So Newland actually is a, is an overlooked player in Russiagate as well. And perhaps we'll learn even more from the Durham investigation, which is now currently focused on the Michael Sussman case, the the Clinton lawyer. But it's just the the like the the web of deceit here and its connections to the current war in Ukraine, I think are greater than we currently even understand. And hopefully if the Durham report is ever allowed to be released and if Durham ever really, you know, goes where I think he should go, then we'll find out something even more damning. But it's it's really incredible how much all of this is completely evaded. Media scrutiny. If we had a media that does its job, it'd be talking about connections like this, but it doesn't. And so it's left for those of us who do pay attention to try to work out the the puzzle uh, until, of course, we get canceled and censored. So you know, we'll see. I think
9: interesting now that because you had an earlier caller um, making the point that maybe this uh, office of disinformation may be preemptive, and that that could be it exactly. You know. I, I remember like seeing this, the way the entire media cascaded upon this, this whole, uh, Hunter Biden laptop is a fake. And now it turns out it's absolutely true. And now yeah. it's more and more evidence coming out that, oh, you know, Papa Joe was more involved than, uh, he says, you know, or, or he claimed. And the mm-hmm. way he, um, like stood up at the debate and, and made it out as though this was completely, you know, uh, dirty tricks and, and false information and nope, it's, it was true, (laughs) you know, and he was involved. So I think we're, we are, we are, um, you know, uh, an imperial state that is just rushing toward the bottom as as fast as we possibly can. And, um, you know, The ruble's doing pretty well right now, and the dollar ain't. Yep, yep. John, thanks for the call. Thanks so
0: much, much, Aaron, for for all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Shamir, you're up.
10: Hello, uh, Mr. Aaron Matic, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Uh, Hi. Uh, I just, uh, you know, you recently said that you are agreeing with uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, I just wanted to know, have you seen the interview of Noam Chomsky where he said that the only Western leader who is talking about negotiation is Donald Trump? Would you please talk? Yeah, about I that did say I before? did.
0: I did say that Chomsky made the unfortunate but but accurate I point know. that the only Western leader right now who is proposing anything sensible when it comes to Ukraine is Donald Trump. And Chomsky is not praising Trump. And in fact, Chomsky says that Trump is the most dangerous person in the world based on Trump's overall agenda. But Chomsky is making the point that our Western political leaders are so deranged right now and so war-obsessed that, that um, even Donald Trump is being a voice of sanity and calling for diplomacy to end the war. And that's not a commentary in defense of Trump. It's a commentary on just how degraded our political culture has become and dangerous it's become.
10: Uh, I just wanted to have Uh, another question. I mean, you, you, uh, Glenn Uh, Greenwald, Michael
0: Gracie, you talk a lot about... Shamir, if you could speak up a little louder, if you could speak a little louder, I'm having a hard time hearing you.
10: Hello, Uh, you and uh, uh, Michael Tracy and Glenn Greenwald, you talk a lot about uh, debunking the media, but I wanted to know, uh, is there any accurate reporting I can get about the actual war that is happening in Ukraine and Russia? For example, uh, Patrick Coburn, who writes for I think iNews right now, he's saying that the first phase of war, Russia lost, and now in the second phase of war in the Donbass, uh, they have much better advantage. Like what is actually happening in Ukraine? Uh, can, uh, can you, can... Well,
0: listen. I I'm not there, so I can't give you a uh, credible answer th- about that because I I don't I don't have a full understanding of what's happening on the ground because I'm not there, and this is you know complicated military stuff that's above my uh, knowledge base. But now, uh, Patrick Copern is a you know, someone I really respect and is someone who I, I think should be listened to. Uh, someone like Scott Ritter is someone who I follow closely. Are you familiar with him?
10: Uh, no, not yet. Okay,
0: so Scott Ritter is a former uh, Marine Corps intelligence officer and a former UN weapons inspector, and he was a whistleblower who essentially uh, tried to stop the Bush administration's drive to invade Iraq. And uh, it sounds like he has a different take than Patrick Coburn has. He thinks that Russia, although it had some, it had more troubles than he and Russia uh, may have expected. That Russia still has been successful so far in its aims, and that it's only a matter of time before Ukraine is fully defeated. And that's his take. And um, I have no way to assess the credibility of it because I'm cause I'm not there. And it, it and these are touch on issues that are beyond my beyond my pay grade.
10: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Daniel.
11: Thank
0: you for taking the um, Sure. I'm, I'm
11: curious. Uh, what your thoughts are on global warming uh about 3 or 4 years ago i went down the global warming hole, and um it looks pretty awful and uh and maybe we will experience some very negative impacts in the next 10 to 40 years and i'm just curious what your your thoughts are and i'm also curious if you've ever heard of a guy by the name of paul beckwith who uh does some youtube uh has a youtube channel uh, he's based out of Ottawa, and he does some uh, analysis on uh, scientific reporting on um, on global warming.
0: I have nothing really novel to offer on the topic, except just I'm, I'm concerned about it like everybody else. Okay. I've never heard of this guy, so I, I can't say oh, no.
11: Yeah, maybe you could check him out and uh, interview him. Uh, he's pretty interesting.
0: Okay. Uh, what's his name again? Paul Beckwith.
11: Paul Beckwith.
0: Paul Beckwith. Yeah. Okay. He's uh, been on
11: CBC before, and uh, he's been on some some media, but not, not a huge amount.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for the recommendation. Thanks. Okay. okay.
11: Have a good
12: day. You Andrew. Hello? Can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. Uh, I'm using a new pair of headphones, so I wasn't sure. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, I know, this is a little bit off topic from what has been discussed so far but i wanted to get your take on um the current situation in the pacific between china on one side and then u.s australia new zealand etc on the other side and whether you have any insight on whether that could escalate into something that's even bigger than what's going on between the West and Russia, or if you think that maybe because of the differences between China's and Russia's foreign policy in the last couple decades at least, and really, like, since the Second World War, I'd say, um, if that's something that's less likely. Because that, to me, if it does escalate, it seems like it'll be... Bigger and more scary, but I don't know if it's as likely as what's going on now. Yeah, there there are people who say that the
0: war in Ukraine has made it more likely that uh, China will try to conquer Taiwan uh, by by force, uh, unless Taiwan agrees to a Hong Kong like situation of incorporation into China. So, but I don't, it's not really a region I follow closely, so my insight there is very limited. I just, you know, in general, given that I, I'm primarily concerned with what the U.S. government does, because that's where I live and pay taxes to, I, I don't see why the U.S. should be involved in regions across the world like like Asia. I mean, what what business do they have there? Uh, China's business should be the business of itself and its neighbors. That's uh, That's pretty much what I can offer on the topic
12: yeah so what uh what worries me is the um the current situation over the Solomon Islands, where u s officials have visited the country to meet with opposition. they've basically um I think Australia was the one who told China that if China builds a military base on the Solomon Islands, then that'll be a red line for them, and so all of this has happened in
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That happened that happened very recently and it speaks to how funny it is for the US to claim to care about sovereignty and you know Blinken's mantra that no country can dictate to another its security policy. Well, yeah. Here's the US doing that with the Solomon Islands. It's a perfect example of US hypocrisy.
12: Mhm. And then I also wanted to know if you've heard anything about um Transnistria, the region, uh, that's de facto separate from Moldova and there seems to be back and forth allegations that each side is accusing the other of plotting a uh, false flag attack in that region and I've read that reportedly um, within Transnistria is one of the largest weapons depots in all of Europe and so I wonder if you've heard anything about those recent developments as well.
0: I have not heard that. I have not, but that sounds uh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I'll have to look into it. So okay. Andrew, thanks for the call. Thanks for the call. Yes. Joshua, Josh, you so you, you're up.
2: All right, you hear me all right? Yes, we do. All right, so I just, uh, you know, I'm looking at this, from, I do look at things from a climate perspective. I have been looking at things from a climate perspective for the last six years, and I think we're pretty much fucked. Um, Sorry for the language, it is a Sunday, Um, but also from an anti-war perspective, like we really do not have strong voices anymore. It seems like on the anti-war level of things that we seem to be following a very neoliberal, fascist, technocrat, oligarchs perspective on how things should go. And that's on a global basis. Um, I feel like we've been executing petro wars as petro horrors for the last 60 years. Um, and, you know, the jig is kind of up. I think that the workers kind of see that, you know, we're getting rooked at every angle um, and they really don't care about us. Um, but I think that we have a lot of people on the left and or the right, which neither one is correct um, in how things should go, that are ready for something different. Uh, I mean, just from the rhetoric that we hear shows like this, like, I think we're ready. Uh, I just don't think we have leaders. I think we have puppets and they have good propaganda, Um, but uh, people that are waking up are not listening to that propaganda anymore. And I want to get your perspective on why might we be doing this? Why are we going back to nationalism and xenophobia as opposed to collaborating on global levels with our partners to address things like climate change? Um, to collaborate on things like artificial intelligence, on quantum mechanics, um, these things that really will allow us as a species to really address problems in a more effective way. Do you have any perspectives on that? Yeah, when a society
0: is you know, organized around coercion, exploitation, manipulation, you know, fooling people into going along with policies that ultimately harm their own self-interest then you have to find external enemies to blame everything on and keep people diverted and keep people divide keep people divided so nationalism and xenophobia is a great way to do that and especially and then it it works beautifully because it when people are deprived of their basic needs they're going to blame whoever is the most palatable option and you know there's a whole ecosystem that wants to blame immigrants and blame anybody different from them And that's what, you know, so many media ecosystems are are geared towards and encourage. And so just like the worst parts of our human nature are are encouraged by the society that we live in, you know? So I think that's what helps explain the, you know, why xenophobia and nationalism are such powerful currents because there's no other political force that is is there that is organized around giving people their basic needs and cooperation and whether that's in one country or around the world cooperating on challenges like global warming or nuclear proliferation. It's just not the priorities of the people who run our world. Their priorities are ensuring profit and power for themselves. And so hence why they have to keep us focused on issues that keep us divided and against each other.
2: I'll just say one thing that uh, just to have some solace on a Sunday afternoon, as I see these daughters, you know, making these, I don't know, decisions on other people's behalf that are not on these people's behalfs. is I was at the dog park today and I have two big dogs and uh, a daughter is coming up the hill and he has a choice to go two paths. Like he can come at me with my two young dogs and we could potentially have a dog fight or he can go downhill and get away. And I both let's get out of the dog park. Okay. He decides to come at me smiling the whole way and my dogs tear into his dog. And I feel like that's where this country's at. I mean, if they just keep poking us, we're going to bite. And maybe it's time for us to bite.
0: Well, I hear you. (laughs) I totally hear you. And Joshua, thanks for the call. All right. Willem, you're up. Hey, Aaron. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? Okay.
13: Um, I have a, I guess, a lead for you. Like if you wanted to pursue this um, story. Um, but so I watched, um, breaking the set with Abby Martin, uh, many years ago and she had on a, an academic, a British academic named Nafiz Ahmed. And he, uh, talked about how the, um, DOD was handing out a lot of research money to social scientists, um, to study a kind of mass civil breakdown, uh, and there's an article in The Guardian um, called Pentagon Preparing for Mass Civil Breakdown. Uh, social science is being militarized to develop operational tools to target peaceful activists and protest movements. And it's speculation, but um, there was no follow up to this story. Um, but I know that he reached out to some of these academics and asked them like, what exactly they were studying, um, but I think there hasn't been a follow up since and it'd be interesting to know, um, if this kind of research has been behind like all these different censorship campaigns, this uh, ministry of, of truth that just got rolled out, um, all this tech, uh, you know, squashing of different, uh, opposing views to the, to the narrative that's official. Um, yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there because uh, I come from the social science uh, world, and it is really disgusting to hear about these um, scientists uh, just kind of engaging in this kind of research. Um, but yeah, food
0: for well, thought. It sounds interesting. It, it doesn't sound surprising. I mean, this is this is standard now, unfortunately. But it sounds interesting. So thanks for the tip. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care take care eric
2: it's aaron mate live
0: (laughs) yes it is eric and i can always count on you to uh to say that so thank you thanks for the comic relief
14: all right yes um i wanted to ask you um well because since we're talking about this karaoke singer lady you know and she's giving karaoke singers i think a bad name because i'm a karaoke singer Mm. um And I was singing my latest karaoke song of singing John Lennon's Imagine, and I would Mm. go, um, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing for Russia to kill or die for, and no Ukraine to. (laughs) Um, Because I think, you know, the role of a comedian should be to offend everyone, but to make people laugh. But in any case, when I think of someone like her, like, I don't know if you saw the one where it's her singing like the Mary Poppins song.
12: And just of trying course. to go
14: through her thought process of making that TikTok where she sings about disinformation and misinformation. And it's like, wow, she's such a good singer. And it's like, no, you're not. I mean, the the, the idea, the idea, I mean, like I wanted to do just a little bit of savage gay criticism of her just because I am a former theater kid. Um, but it's just like the idea would her literally her worldview is that if somebody were to tell her, like, you look like you're singing isn't that good and you don't look that good. And this is a very weird video. Like that's bullying. That's hateful even though it's kind of true and it would be kind of like a, a, a thoughtful criticism, you know, or something to say, like, just, I'm sorry, you're just not that good. But um, in any case, it's like, that's that's the framework that she's expanding from, like personally. And I think it's very <laughs> obvious that she's not like a deep thinker, like in terms of um, um, what she's doing, because it's just this idea of saying the right buzzwords. Like, for example, the difference between, okay, what is the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Well, one of them is stuff that's true but inconvenient to the narrative you know and Mm. you get the sense that if i were to say that to her she would not get what i was getting for you know she would be like yes exactly you know (laughs) like the the idea of an inconvenient truth but in any case i really hope you know from my legal perspective that the first amendment lawyers can kind of strangle this in the crib i mean i do kind of (laughs) trust our judiciary a little bit for a little while longer when it comes to the first amendment and you know uh just plainly saying that no this is like congress you know establishing a law that Limits speech. Um, It's pretty, you know. I and and the other crazy thing is with women like her and anybody else who does who or people like her, I should say, because it's not really a gender thing, but um, who who buy into this very authoritarian disinformation narrative is that they they don't seem to get that, like for example, like you should be able to analogize. Well, you know, they think like, well, the internet's different, so. Okay, but what if, you know, a hundred years ago, the government was saying, we're going to have a panel to encourage, uh, you know, bookstores not to sell foreign pamphlets, you know, because it's dis- disinformation. Oh, or, or how about like, you know, well, what about the Aliens and Sedition Acts? You know, she, she's not going to think in those terms. She's going to think in terms of, you know, of her experience of being, uh, I guess millennial or something. And it's really, it's odd to me because I am, you know, sometimes I can be that, show. Like, I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with Harry Potter?
0: I've never read Harry Potter. Obviously, I'm familiar with it, but I've never read it.
14: But Or seen the movies?
0: Have not seen the movies, no.
14: Oh, okay. Because the way I would really own her as a Harry Potter head is that she thinks she's Hermione, like the very smart, <laughs> you know, you know who Hermione is, right? Well, I don't, so but, really but I'm is.
0: assuming, yeah. So go ahead. Yes,
14: she's the main female character. She's okay. Harry's best friend. Um, and she's very, you know, she's a key to the story. She's very, you know, very good uh, role model for young girls and uh, for anybody, really. <laughs> but in any case... She thinks she's hermione like the hero of the story when really she's dolores umbridge okay so in so in harry potter and i believe it's the order of the phoenix what dolores umbridge is is she's the teacher who's forcing everyone to she's very authoritarian she bans anyone from talking about voldemort in the school voldemort which is he who must not be named but she's the one who's saying no you can't say that he's back even though harry saw it and, and what she does actually specifically which is very interesting as a metaphor in the book in the story in the movie in the book is that she does the teacher thing of forcing Harry to write like you know a thousand times? I will not write lies. I will not write lies. Like um, uh, Bart Simpson, you know, in the you know that whole thing. Except that she she gives him this magical pen, you know, magical quill pen that every time he writes it, it it carves it into his um at the back of his hand, like you know, like a cut, and then the cut heals, but then it cuts again. This was just a little magical touch, you know? I mean, you've got to really imagine that image of just that authoritarian mindset. But the whole, her whole character, though, is that she dresses in pink and that she's very sickly and sweet and she does it with a smile. And that's the real authoritarianism i got that it. these days. Is they do it with a smile.
0: I got it. Yes, it, I, I think that, that sounds very apt to me. So, Eric, thank you for that. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. That does sound thank very apt. You. Okay, Mo. Mo, if you're there. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing? Hi there. Yeah,
15: I'm you? there. Happy May Day.
0: Happy May Day. Yeah, thank you. Happy May Yeah,
15: calling from the Republic of Georgia just to let you know where I'm at. Still not late to listen to you guys. Um, just something you said earlier about uh, the leaks we reminded me of an article I just read from Zach Doffman. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you read it. Um, <clears> he <throat> was talking about, I think, some CIA and other people were talking about how they already knew that Ukraine was a red line for Russia and that, you know this slow escalation kept on going, that Russia would do this, but they didn't think it would go that far. I'm just kind of laughing of like, oh, everybody already knew it, but nobody knew it before it happened. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with that article.
0: I have not read that one yet. I, I have seen his reporting on this, but I have not read that one yet, no.
15: Yeah, it was pretty interesting because they had a couple unnamed sources that they didn't want to say anything, but... Um, <sighs> It was just like after the fact, and now that the the Hounds of War have been unleashed, they're kind of saying, well, you know, we were trying to be more cautious, but it was just like uh, these members of Congress who kept on pushing these these weapons, and I'm and I'm, <laughs> I'm just laughing. It's just like the disinformation never never ends.
0: Um, well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll definitely check that. Out. Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
15: Yeah, no, no, no. Thank you for that. Um, just another question. I want to look back. Um, thinking, uh, you know, where this kind of escalation all started and I'm trying to think about I remember at the uh, Republican National Convention where well, there was the big kind of Russia gate issue about Trump taking out the uh, defensive aid for Ukraine yes like, I know that was somebody else who was pushing that who wanted that in and I don't remember it just this, just was early, this was an
0: early this was an early part this was this was an early part of the Russia gate scam this is the summer of 2016 mm-hmm. a fake controversy arose because basically At the Republican convention where, you know, delegates get together and draft the party platform, which is completely meaningless, by the way. No one takes these platforms seriously. They don't matter. But there was one delegate who proposed language that called for sending arms to Ukraine. And the reason why this delegate wanted that language is because Obama's policy at the time, as I talked about earlier, was not to do that because Obama didn't want to further inflame the proxy war for the reasons I spoke about before. He knew that Russia would always have military dominance and always be able to escalate more than the U.S. ever could. And he also was concerned about the arms, U.S. arms getting up, uh, um, winding up in the hands of neo-Nazis. Um, so this delegate, uh, motivated by wanting to be, you know, quote-unquote tougher on Russia than Obama, proposed this language, and some uh, Republican officials at the convention basically intervened and didn't accept that language, which is very common in a plank drafting process i mean like these kind of arguments happen so the final text though of the republican platform was still far more hawkish than the uh republican one uh because the republican platform still called for providing assistance to ukraine's armed forces and the democratic party whatever it said it was not as militaristic as the republican one but still because essentially this language, the the, the like the strongest possible language was rejected. This it became a controversy. It was leaked to uh, Josh Rogan, who's a neocon columnist at the Washington Post. And it was turned into this issue where all of a sudden the, Trump was beca- was being soft on Russia. And then lo and behold, right after that, Christopher Steele put out uh, in his one of his dossier reports that, that a element of the conspiracy between Trump and Russia was that Trump had agreed to... You know, sideline Ukraine as a campaign issue in exchange for Russian help. And it was obvious that Christopher Steele or whoever wrote his dossier was just reading the news media and then coming up with a conspiracy theory based on that. So, you know, this was, at the time, it was just yet one more element of the dumb Russia conspiracy theory. But looking back now, it was also an effort, I think, to cement uh, inside Washington and in the media the sanctity of the proxy war in Ukraine and to stigmatize anybody who didn't want to go along with it. And it had consequences. You know, Trump came into office and one of the things, one of the first things he did, or, or at least one of the things he, first, thing, first things he did when it comes to Russia in his first year in office was he reversed the Obama policy of not arming Ukraine and he approved the sale of Javelin missiles, right. partly because I think he wanted to look tough while, while everybody was calling him a Russian agent. So these fake allegations had an impact and the... Impact all went in the direction of further militarizing the Ukraine proxy war, exactly as I think those behind the Russian, uh, the the RussiaGate scam intended.
15: Right, exactly. The big difference between now, um, like Blinken, and twenty fifteen, when he was uh, Obama's uh, talking about Obama's policy, is all the years of training weapons, CIA. I mean, it's, I don't want to be spiritual, but it's like, you know, you know, in 2015, we couldn't really do much. But now, obviously, looking at the effectiveness of the Ukrainian military and its targeting and its, um, help that it's getting from intelligence, from the British, from, uh, the U.S. that's been in news media, it's, it was, I don't want to say it's a groundwork laid, but it's definitely been years of development of getting Ukraine able to sustain this war. And it's Absolutely.
0: Kind of scary. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
15: Yeah. Thank you so that, much. I, you actually. This, this, go ahead.
0: No, I just. That background, we're not allowed uh, yeah, to. Yes, this
15: app is 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 out on me, so I can't hear anything, so I'll just hang out okay. probably listen All to right. the radio. Well, thank you. Later. thank you
0: so much. Thanks,
16: Mo, for the call. Thank you. All right, Lance, you're up. The uh, opportunity to speak. Great work, everything you do. Thank you so much um, for for everything you uh you do in the former journalism, courageous journalism, all that, and so the TikTok thing and the whole uh, disinformation thing. Maybe the Keystone cops aspect of it will point, take some scales off some of the eyes of the newly, you know, people on the left who have this newly bo- new love for the deep state. So maybe they'll will start to understand that it, uh, it's not not a good thing, you know. Uh, now, as far as the, uh, you know, the things about these side-by-side comparisons of like you were talking about Blinken or Obama's statement about it's not in our interest. It's not, you know, we don't have enough of a strategic interest in Ukraine. Russia does. This is after Crimea was taken. And he said, they're going to fight for it more than we're going to ever be, you know, should be willing to, et cetera. I don't know if if Obama's been silent. So if you take Blinken then, Blinken now, Obama then, and maybe silence now on all these things. And I think tangentially, you got people that were our friends, including Putin, is the point. Hussein was our friend till he became Hitler, you know. In, in Iraq, when we wanted him to fight against Iran, Bin Laden was our guy in Afghanistan who was proxy fighting against Russia for us until he was Hitler. Putin was our guy, right? I mean, you could, you know, way more about this. You've reported on this. I think that Putin was kind of like our guy. I think Matty was pointing this out. You know that we had KGB. You'll have order. You know, he'll be uh, bringing capitalism. Uh, and uh, yeah, sure, Putin. He was our guy till he became what worse than Hitler. And so these side by side comparison. does anybody on any side of the political aisle really need any more than that to realize, and I'll just stop with this, of what I just recently re-saw, I don't know if it's recent, that Chris Hedges, brilliant, talking about, about the manufactured consent starting a World War I. We had no reason. We had no dog in that fight. The corporations did. They didn't want to lose money, and that's why we backed England over Germany, et cetera. But, and that's been you know straightforward the case till now. Only it's more insidious. It, and I've probably read the recent articles about how the Pentagon more and more involved with not just propaganda when it comes to military stuff, but things unrelated to military film and TV. And they're infiltrating, trying to get stuff written that's kind of like proto pro military industrial complex. But uh yeah, but these side by side comparisons of the complete hypocrisy of the very same people saying the opposite thing about Russia versus, you know, and Ukraine. And also, Let's not, let's throw in, the, let's put the side by side statement of the people who said after the wall comes down, we get the Stasi info, but we won't, and you're going to just pretty much disband the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, NATO's going to still exist, but we won't encroach east, et cetera, et cetera. So, all those things, I mean, do, do we really need any more, you know, to, to not realize and, and, and why people yeah. are so on board with that one.
0: I hear all that. Lance, thank you for the call. Thank you. All right, Fractal, and I'm going to ha- have to go a little quicker with the calls because we're going to have to wrap it up soon, so go ahead.
17: Hey, thank you, man. Uh, I just want to say thank you for all you do. Um, thank you for reporting, John Conyers, writing the bill. Um, you were the first person I ever heard do that on Jimmy Dore's show. I wanted to ask you— Let me just explain that. So,
0: yeah. Let me just explain that for yeah. people who don't know. So it's John Conyers authored a bill that's still on the books, which people in Washington and the U.S. media have forgotten about. Which is bans US assistance to the Azov Battalion. Because mm-hmm. as, as John Conyers pointed out, this is a neo Nazi organization and we don't want to arm neo Nazis. And it's still US law, but it's basically being everyone knows it's being violated left and right. But that's that was one of Conyers' last major achievements in Congress before he left and, and passed. So yeah.
17: Absolutely. And I just wanna thank you. Thank you for reporting that. And I'm a I'm a Detroiter. As yeah. some people like Lance He's heard me on the other calls with Savvy and Brianna Joy Gray. And so that's that's huge. And I wanted to say, I wanted to ask first, did you do, I think you all at the Gray Zone did a report on the Africans trapped in Ukraine, correct?
0: On the on the what trap?
17: African students and African workers that are trapped in Ukraine.
0: Oh, I don't remember if the Gray Zone covered that or not. I remember that was obviously a big issue. These, um, it
17: still is. It's my still my wife wrote yeah. a paper on it. Yeah, my wife oh, wow. wrote a paper on it in grad school um, for international relations. Mm. She's seeing. So um, I was wondering if maybe you and Jimmy could kind of put that out there. And the reason I say that, I said this on Savvy Sab, Sab Show a couple of days ago. I think that that will be a great leverage point for the anti-war movement because you have a lot of people who are supposedly on the left and for civil rights supporting the Azov Battalion. And those yeah. two things don't go together. And I think that mm-hmm. that, once again, black people being the catalyst for peace, uh, as we have been in the past, especially in the civil rights movement, I think that's that's our leverage point right there. And mm-hmm. uh and it it it's the center of of it all because especially when you have people like Sam Cedar saying, Well in the street fight, you know, I grabbed a whip in nearest to me and you're gonna grab the Azov battalion. I mean, things have been revealed about some of the people that call themselves leftists. And maybe as I said to Savvy, some, uh, a pastor here in Detroit was a lady, said sometimes the blessing you get in life is not what you get, but what you didn't get. And so we didn't get Hillary. We didn't get Trump again. We didn't get some leftists because now we see how authoritarian they are. So I think that could help set things right. Um, and I encourage you to do that. The last thing I wanted to bring up is Trump. Just how you brought up how he undid everything Obama and John Conyers were doing. I think we ought to have what Nick Cruz from the Fred Hampton, well, formerly Fred Hampton the black, the Black Out Revolutionary Network said, some revolutionary discipline, as I said on Sav- Savvy Show, because I know that the thought of he wouldn't have done this, I think it's just wishful thinking because we are concerned about World War III and nuclear warfare. But let's not forget, he was gassed up all this time, as you said, with Russiagate. He got rolled twice when it came to Afghanistan, even though he started getting out. He was right with the instincts of NATO, but still kind of funded them. And as I didn't mention before, he was the one to just assassinate Soleimani, like extrajudiciously. <laughs> I mean, they presented him the most worst option, and he took it. So, yep, it's just it would be convenient for us. It'd be it's convenient for us to say it for the right that Trump wouldn't do this. I think it's undisciplined of us to say because the whole point of this, and I think Nancy Pelosi gave the game away. Republican Party, please take back your party. We need a Republican Party because they need them to govern. They want to roll back the clock on civil rights and the Gilded Age, and they want to roll back the clock on information, as well as having, you know, your stay in UK, as they say in Aikido. You have the person that takes the move and gets it done to them and the person that does it. And they're paid by the same wrestling promoter, as just Ventura would say. Mm-hmm. So let's not lose sight of the goal, which is why they don't want to pass a voting rights bill, because 58 percent of the country wants somebody new. I think right. we should transfer that to Congress this time. No blue, no red or blue will do in twenty twenty two.
0: That's all I wanted to say. All right. Well, listen. Thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Rudy, you're up. And Rudy, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. Yeah. Um,
18: I'll be. Hello. Hi. Give me a second, guys. Be right there. Hey, Aaron. What's up? How you doing?
0: I'm well. Uh, what's going on?
18: Hey Amen, um so I wanted to just mention that I saw the uh the press thing that Trevor Noah had presented yesterday um, and you know it was it, i basically you know got what you got, which was like it was like a sixty nine between Biden and the media you know it was they were making fun of us as they pretended to be sort of making fun of each other, and then you had Trevor Noah go on after Biden was like, oh, unlike in Russia, in the United States, you can make fun of the president and, you know, not be put in jail. And, you know, there was so many setups, I think, for somebody like Trevor Noah to be, you not know, to really sort of put Biden administration under like, you know, on the stove, on the heat, because, yeah, you, you, how are you going to say that when you got Julian Assange in prison? You know, how yeah, are you let me explain. That? It, yeah. Let me
0: explain it for people who missed it. Basically, at at the White House Correspondents' Dinner last night, uh, Trevor Noah gave this kind of sanctimonious speech where he talked about how wonderful the U.S. system is. How he can make fun of the president and nothing's going to happen to him. And the U.S. media has such freedom, and you can say whatever you want to people in power. And no matter how uncomfortable you make them, you'll still be free to do your job. And the point is, like, what about Julian Assange and many other people who face persecution for? Upsetting power in the U.S. But Julian the Songers, of course, is the top example because he faces a, a gulag for the rest of his life.
18: Right. And it, Yeah, it was weird. They, the way that they set it up, ultimately, it makes it seem like there's an opposition, and ultimately it's just like it just concretizes the corrupt system. It's, it's disgusting, yeah. but I just wanted to say thanks, thanks Rudy.
0: Thanks for the call. Okay. Yep. Jolt is the next caller.
16: Hi, Aaron. Um, nice
7: talking to you. Um, quick question. Um, if you don't mind something a little bit more personal. Um, um, I read that your dad is Hungarian. Do you uh, speak Hungarian yourself?
0: Niem.
16: Niem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, so, yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. All right. Do you still have family there? No,
0: we don't. Everyone was, uh, I mean, some were exterminated in the Holocaust, and everyone else fled. My, uh, but my father's actually going back there pretty soon, and uh, I, I've never been. I'd love to go. I'd, I'd absolutely love to go. Yeah, uh, you should.
7: My dad is Hungarian, too. My
0: mom is German,
7: and um, so, yeah, just just wanted to, to know that. So thanks
0: for the opportunity. Well, thank you. Thanks for calling. And
7: Vic.
19: Uh, hi, Aaron. Uh, uh, I come from uh, the other side of the world, so I'm coming from India. I'm a big fan of your work and you know, the kind of uh, you know anti-imperialism awareness that you bring to everybody. So really appreciate that. So yeah, uh, coming uh, from India, so you know Indian government and you know and uh, you know the the Chinese and the, a lot of Asian countries have have. You know, have had a very kind of a different response compared to the West. So you know, the the while the West focuses, you know, a lot on the you know this Ukraine war, more on you know pumping you know, uh, weapons and all. The Asian countries have come up with you know, uh, uh, de-escalation and uh, you know diplomacy. <laughs> So you know, why do you think? I mean, do you think there's you know a, a reason for uh, you know a, such a stark difference between the uh, Asian countries and the and you know the West, or you know is it more like uh, well, what do you, what do you, or, do you yeah. yeah, what do you, what uh, do you think? Um, I, I think it's it's probably you know it's uh, it's more of you know uh, kind of you know uh, uh, a play bet, between the weapons contractors and a lot of the establishment who you know who kind of really uh, were waiting for this kind of war to kind of, you know, uh, uh, uh start doing their business, you know, pushing their pockets, I think. I think. And, you know, a lot of countries in Asia who don't have that much role in terms of weapons, I mean, they are there to gain weapons from Russia, but not to pump them. So, I think that kind of is the balance. But, you know, I'm curious about your perspective. I mean, what is the Kind of the force that is the, you know, the kind of drives the stark contrast between the east uh, and the west.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting contrast, uh, and I guess to whatever extent countries are not on board, is they've managed to, you know, establish more independence and more say over their own affairs. I think that's what it comes down to. Uh, countries in in the west in the west in Europe uh, are so dependent on the U.S. for everything. And are just more susceptible to following his orders. And I know that Pakistan has established its own course of action recently. India has good relations with uh, Russia, and you know China has also, you know, established itself as a economic power, especially that is heavily targeted by the U.S. And so, I guess people. Everyone in the middle doesn't, you know, recognizes that the U.S. power is diminishing, and also that this current system where the U.S. just basically, if you're not obedient, it will cut you off from the global economy, or it can at least with murderous sanctions and taking you off the the Swift banking system. You know, countries are understandably not willing to play along anymore, and they want to build an alternative. And right now, it's China and Russia that are leading the way in building that alternative. So it's in their interest, I suppose, to try to keep as good relations with everyone and hope that the U.S. doesn't overthrow them (laughs) because that's always the fear if you don't play along. Uh,
19: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I mean, I also would like to point out, you know, uh, India because, you know, India is, you know, kind of, you know, I think U.S. government, both the Republicans as well as the Democrats, they kind of, uh, you know, recognize India as, you know, a a strategic partner. And I know they are also partners in, you know, Quad uh, and, you know, and, you know, being, uh, you know, uh, the world's, you know, most world's biggest democracy. So I think, uh, you know, uh, the kind of the, the response between, you know, both the between the both democracies, I mean, the U.S. and th- and India has been you know, quite, con- quite starkly different. So, you know, uh, do you think uh, there's a way or there's a possibility where the U.S. establishment could kind of, you know, uh, uh, refer to all kind of you know consult with their strategic partners like India and see okay, uh, you know why is there such a stark contrast? Maybe, you know, maybe it's all about you know, learning. I know the American uh, you know uh, establishment doesn't like you know learning. They like to kind of enforce their kind of agenda. So do you think there's or you see any possibility in the future where you no, know, the strategic partners could be even you know closer in terms of their thinking? Uh, I mean, and and their agenda. So you see, anything uh, about that? Yeah, just to close things out.
0: You know, those are bigger questions than I have time for now, unfortunately, um, because yeah, th- those are in- important questions, but just too lofty for right now. Because I'm gonna have to go, so we'll have to save it for another time. Okay, Vic. Uh,
19: sure, no, no, no worries. Uh, have a have a good day.
0: Thank you for calling in and thanks to everyone for tuning in for your calls and comments. It's great to see such a big turnout. So thank you for spending some time with me. I'll be back on here tomorrow morning with Katie Halper after we do the, the Useful Idiots Monday morning live show. That's the Monday morning is on YouTube at 10 a.m. at the Useful Idiots channel. And right afterwards at 11 a.m. Eastern time, we'll be on here, uh, to do a call in. So stop by there if you can. Otherwise, have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye, everybody.